everybody. Hope everybody's, you can, I think you're allowed to say good morning. And if you're at home, you're definitely allowed to say good morning out loud. Uh, I'm going to read our passage for us. It's not short, but it's a good story, so it's okay. <laughs> and then we'll work through it. This is uh, Genesis chapter 22, beginning at verse 1. And it happened after these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Take your son, your only child, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains where I will tell you. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his donkey, and he took two of his servants with him, and Isaac his son. And he chopped wood for a burnt offering, and he got up, and he went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place at a distance. And Abraham said to his servants, you stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go up there. We will worship, then we will return to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and placed it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and the knife, and the two of them went up together. And Isaac said to Abraham, his father, my father. And he said to him, here I am, my son. And he said, here's the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went up together. And they came to the place that God had told them, and Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood, and he bound Isaac, his son, and he placed him on the altar atop the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand, and he took the knife to slaughter his son. And the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the boy. Do not do anything to him, for now I know that you are one who fears God, since you have not withheld your son your only child from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, a ram was caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham called the place in the name of the place, the Lord will provide, for which reason it is said today, on the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and he said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only child, that I will certainly bless you and greatly multiply your offspring as the stars in the heavens and as the sand that is by the shore of the sea. And your offspring will take possession of the gate of his enemies. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through your offspring because you have listened to my voice. And Abraham returned to his servants and they got up and they went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived in Beersheba. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, the story that we're talking about this, year, this week is one of the more famous, or maybe even one of the more infamous, stories in the book of Genesis. It's been written about for centuries. It's been referenced or engaged in movies and in television shows in our time. It's been talked about probably for as long as it's existed. The story is the story where we refer to as the sacrifice of Isaac. It's got a Hebrew name as well. The Hebrew name for the story is the Akedah. Akedah is a word that means the binding, the binding of Isaac, which is a reference to the binding of Isaac and the climax of the story. This is a very carefully crafted, exceptionally well-told and powerful 
and troubling story. Of the stories in the Old Testament, very few challenge so aggressively our modern ideas about what is fair and about what is right. This story presses us into very difficult questions about what it means to know and to follow God's will. So I'm going to make four moves in our story today, in our retelling of the story. First, we're going to talk about Abraham's will and the test from God. Then we'll talk about Isaac's place in the story and Isaac's will. Then we're going to talk, uh, well, we're going to do something that might seem a little strange. I hope it doesn't seem too strange. Uh, But we're going to make a move where we're going to talk about Jesus' will and the will of God. And then finally, we'll get to you and me. Okay? The story starts with the simple phrase, after these things. This story is the part of a larger story. That larger story is the tale of the relationship between God and one relatively small family, the family of Sarah and Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, that story begins with God calling Abraham to leave the land of his birth and to go to another place that God is going to show him. The call is punctuated with a promise. If Abraham and Sarah will go, God will give them many descendants, as numerous as the sand by the sea or the stars in the sky, depending on which bit of the passage you're in. God will give those descendants the land to which God is calling Abraham. And by means of those promised descendants, all of the people of the earth will be blessed. So, you know, big plans. We don't have time to tell the whole backstory. Uh, You know, it's, it's a solid 10 chapters long, 10 long chapters. But let's just say that like any relationship, this, uh, this relationship between God and Abraham, it's got some ups and downs. Most importantly for our story, Abraham's trust in God's promise is real, but it's also sometimes a little wobbly. I mean, he does leave his ancestral home, and he goes to another land, and he does commit his life to knowing this strange God who has spoken to him. But he also pretty regularly tries to take hold of that story himself. I mean, I'm picking on Abraham. It's Abraham and Sarah. They really function as a team here. They're both quite guilty of this. They believe in God's promise, but as the story rolls along and as they're getting older and older, they start to think that they, uh, they really need to bring this promise into reality on their own terms. And so they cook up a plan to get a kid by having Abraham sleep with Sarah's slave girl. And then when that kind of doesn't go well, they kick that kid and that slave girl out of the family, which I think we can all agree is pretty crappy behavior on their part. Um, God also at this point is pretty irritated with them about this entire affair. As an aside, God also cares for that girl, Hagar, and for her child, Ishmael, but that's another story. Finally, God delivers on the promise in God's own time, which is usually how things work, and a son is born to this stubborn couple. The son is Isaac. Those are the things that this uh, story is the after too, right? After these things, those are the things we're talking about. God tested Abraham. The word test here is interesting. It's less like um, taking a test in school and a little bit more like uh, testing a tool that you're a little bit unsure about. Uh, If you were cooking in a new kitchen, sorry, I like to cook, that's why that's my first example, but if you're cooking in a new kitchen uh, and you've never cooked there before, you might test the edge of the knife you're using because you're not sure if it's up to the job or not. That's what the word test means here. 
God is checking here. And the test comes in the form of a command. The command is in verse 2, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a whole burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. Yeah, I know that's disturbing, okay? And we're going to get to that. But first, why the threefold mention of Isaac? The first, a simple reference to Abraham's son, his future hope, this long-awaited child. The second reference, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but maybe a little touch of divine passive aggression here. Your only son, Isaac. I mean, there kind of was that other kid named Ishmael before. This is a way of referring specifically to the child connected to the covenant promise that God has made with Abraham. This is the child who bears the covenant promise. He bears not only the future of Abraham's line, but this is the child through whom God will bring about the promises from those early chapters of Genesis. And then finally, whom you love. Isaac is not simply an instrument of the covenant promise. Isaac is Abraham's child. A beloved, long-awaited child. Abraham is being told by God to sacrifice his future, the only living evidence of the covenant, and his beloved son. So what about this horrible test? What are we supposed to do with this? This does not sit right with us. And to be frank, I don't think that it's supposed to. The phenomenon of being ethically troubled by God's test here is not new. This isn't as though uh, it's just us modern people with our modern ways of reading the Bible who are troubled by this. For centuries, commentaries in this passage have struggled in diverse ways with the promise of God telling somebody to murder their son to prove their loyalty. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about this problem, and I'm I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but mostly because the passage is sort of taking us somewhere else. But I would like to propose to you what I accept is not a very common interpretation, uh, and and maybe not even a correct interpretation, and we'll actually get to that a little bit later, Uh, but one that I think has at least some merit. I would like to propose to you the possibility that God actually wants Abraham to argue with him at this moment in the story. Two things about this. First, Abraham has argued with God before. And Abraham won that argument, to be clear. Back in Genesis 18, Abraham argues with God about destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, these two cities. God tells Abraham the cities will be destroyed because of their wickedness, and Abraham tells God that it seems unfair to destroy the righteous and the wicked alike. The reason he thinks that seems unfair is because it is unfair to destroy the righteous and the wicked alike. And Abraham talks God into a deal whereby if even ten good people can be found in those towns, God will spare them. Abraham actually talks God down to like a a pretty small number. Uh, There weren't ten. That's a completely separate issue, right? God doesn't spare the cities, but Abraham wins that argument is, is what I'm trying to say here. So that's thing one. Thing two. Thing two is the fact that God in the Old Testament is expressly, regularly opposed to human sacrifice. Human sacrifice was a reality in the ancient world. We know this archaeologically. We know about this. Um, But human sacrifice is roundly condemned in the Bible, in a whole bunch of places, from the law to the historical books to the prophetic literature. 
So God's command here is actually a command to violate God's own ethical norms. I think that the threefold mention of Isaac clarifies what God is trying to do here with this command. Abraham has regularly tried to take control of the story of his relationship with God. He's even tried to manufacture an heir. So God presses Abraham on that very point. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, which is to say the son of the promise, the son whom you love. I think that Abraham is supposed to get it right there and then. I think that the light bulb is supposed to go off in that moment, not eight verses later where it actually goes off. Abraham is supposed to say here, but, but God, you would, you would never require a human sacrifice. That would utterly violate your own nature. Oh, 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 I've been quite stupid, haven't I? I think that's what he's supposed to say there. He's supposed to see the ways in which he's tried to take control, the ways in which he's tried to exert his own will on his relationship with God, the ways in which he has withheld so much, including his own son. Abraham does love his son, but his love is misplaced, or maybe a better word is disordered. His love is a love of control and a love of possession. He loves Isaac, Yes, but he loves him as the guarantee of the promise or as the guarantee of his promise. God asks not to take Abraham's love from him, but to reorder Abraham's love. God challenges Abraham to love Isaac not as a possession, but as a gift. Isaac is not something Abraham has accomplished, but someone God has given and called into covenant relationship. But of course, Abraham doesn't argue. He obeys. In this, I personally think that he misses the best and he does the good enough. But that's the story that we've got, and so that's the story that we're going to tell. Abraham obeys God and goes to Moriah with his son and the two servants. And here is promised, I'd like to shift our focus slightly and talk, to, talk about Isaac a little bit. Isaac is an enigmatic figure both here and in the rest of the Old Testament. He's obviously a hugely important figure, but oddly, he gets very, very little narrative time in the book of Genesis. His dad and his kids tend to drown him out. But careful attention to him here is interesting. You see, do you know what one of the trickiest interpretive problems with this text is? How old is Isaac here? Like, whole sections of commentaries are written about this question. How old is Isaac here? Are we talking about a little boy? Are we talking about a preteen? Are we talking about a young man? The words that are used to refer to Isaac are son, which is pretty generic, and another Hebrew word that means young man. In fact, that selfsame word is the same word that is used to describe those two servants that are going along with Abraham and Isaac. But that word can mean a 10-year-old. That word can mean a 20-year-old and everything in between. And those options really change the story, right? Whether Isaac is 10 or whether Isaac is 17 or 18 or 19 or 20. My guess is Isaac and the two servants are about the same age. And they're probably in their teens. Why do I think this? Well, the use of the same word for all three of those people in the story in close proximity suggest that we're supposed to see them as contemporaries, as people of the same age. 
And the tasks that the three of them are given are all uh, tasks that require physical stamina and a pretty high level of responsibility, right? Carrying a lot of wood, you know, managing the donkeys, waiting uh, at the camp down at the base of the mountain. These are all kind of not quite grown-up jobs, but they're not the jobs that you give 10-year-olds. These are not little boys. These are young men. So this young man, Isaac, travels with his father and two servants to Moriah. And upon arriving, the two young men are left, and Isaac and his father travel up the mountain alone. And here, Isaac has a question. Where is the lamb, father? Abraham answers that God will provide the lamb. And this might be the strangest part of a fairly strange story, because we don't know what Abraham means. Does he authentically believe that God will provide an alternative sacrifice? Maybe, maybe I was too hard on Abraham a minute ago. Maybe he has chosen the best thing. Maybe he knows God so well that he trusts God completely and totally to provide an alternative sacrifice, that a substitute will be provided. Or maybe he's lying to Isaac to try and keep the young man calm. Or maybe he's speaking figuratively, referring to Isaac himself as a lamb that's already been provided. I don't know what these words mean. What I do know is that Isaac accepts the answer, nonsensible as it is. Isaac trusts his father. The two of them walk together up the mountain. The actual climax, the moment of highest tension in the story, must be the sacrifice itself, right? Notice the way that the storyteller slows everything down, providing a whole bunch of detail that we actually don't necessarily need. Notice that Isaac is bound and lain upon the altar. And notice especially that there is no dialogue. Nobody speaks. Why doesn't Isaac speak? Why doesn't Isaac fight? And this is where, yes, it, this is where it matters how old he is. He's not a little boy. Why doesn't he fight back? He's probably stronger than his father. Can we infer from this that Isaac is a willing participant in the sacrifice? Is this the depth of this young man's trust in his father? In his trust in God? Abraham reaches for the knife and raises it up, and at the final moment, an angel intervenes and stops the sacrifice. Isaac is spared. Abraham's faith in God is vindicated. The angel says, now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son. And a substitute is indeed given. But it isn't a lamb, like Abraham promised. It's a ram. What a weird detail. It's entirely possible that this little inconsistency doesn't matter, but I'm going to lean into it anyway, because it's interesting to me. The father brings the son to the foot of the mountain. The son asks, Father, where is the sacrifice? The father replies, the lamb will be provided, knowing full well that the son is the lamb. The son accepts this. The father places the wood upon the back of the son who is the lamb, and the lamb carries it up the mountain to the place of sacrifice. Does that sound familiar to you all? Does that sound like another story you might have heard in the Bible? <laughs> Millennia later, 
in a garden that was supposedly very near to the place where Isaac carried that wood, Jesus knelt in tortured prayer on the eve of his death. He prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. That's Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. He prayed this prayer three times. Between each time, he went to check on his followers, and he always found them asleep at the wheel. Three times he prayed that the cup might pass from him, and three times he prayed that God's will should be done in any case. This Son of God, God's only Son, Jesus, the Son God called Beloved, he prayed for release, but he accepted that it would not come. I've been reading a book um, called Motherhood by a theologian named Natalie Carnes, which I honestly cannot recommend highly enough. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, But in this book, um, Natalie Carnes refers to this story about Jesus, and she notes that after the final prayer, Jesus' existential pain and his despair seem to fade away, and he grows calm, even as he's arrested in the next scene. She compares Jesus' calm acceptance of his arrest with the reactions of his followers. Jesus is steady and self-assured. His followers are panicked and wild and violent, running away and cutting people's ears off. She says, and here I'm going to quote Carnes, she says, These wild swings of swords and confidence are presumably what a will that chooses mine over thine looks like. It dominates in violence and withdraws in fear, failing to be faithful to the one it wants to love. I'll give you that again. These wild swings of swords and confidence are presumably what a will that chooses mine over thine looks like. It dominates in violence and withdraws in fear, failing to be faithful to the one that it wants to love. But Jesus remains faithful here in the submission of his will to God. That doesn't mean that Jesus is passive, that's an important distinction. When Jesus submits his will to God, he doesn't give up his will. Instead, it's better to imagine Jesus' will as perfectly and correctly ordered. Jesus withholds nothing from God and discovers that he is exactly where he truly desires to be. But of course, we can say this in a different way about Jesus because we're Christians and we believe that Jesus is God. And so when Jesus accepts his coming death in the garden at Gethsemane, we don't want to say that God decides to kill Jesus and Jesus goes along with it. Instead, we want to say that God, out of ultimate love for creation, refuses to withhold anything, even God's own self, and here embodies a perfect self-sacrificial love. God sacrifices God's self in Christ. At the cross, Jesus is, in a beautiful but strange way, a better Abraham, with his will utterly submitted to God. And God incarnate here is a better Isaac, refusing to withhold even his own life and accepting no substitute for his death. Now, it may seem that it's hard to imagine how we're going to get from this weird stuff about Jesus, being a better Abraham or a better Isaac, to the actual kind of immediate reality of our lives. But let's give it a try, shall we? As followers of Jesus, being like Jesus is the point. 
We are being formed slowly but inevitably into people who reflect Jesus in our lives and who submit our own wills to God, like Jesus did. It is entirely possible that there is no idea that is more repugnant, more horrible to North American culture than the idea of submission of the will to another. I make my own choices. Thank you very much. Nobody gets to tell me what to do. I'm free. And while that version of freedom may reflect our kind of immediate cultural moment, or at least parts of our immediate cultural moment, it isn't actually a very Christian idea. As Christians, at the core of our oldest prayer, the prayer that we've been praying together for just right around 2,000 years now, is the line, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The submission of my will to God. But Colin, you might say, don't we have freedom in Christ? Doesn't Paul tell us that Jesus' death sets us free from sin and death? And why, yes, that is all true. The problem is lately the word freedom has become so corrupted that it's missing pieces that are absolutely essential to understanding what freedom means for Christians. Freedom today means I get to do what I want, or even I get to do whatever I want. Freedom today means I don't owe you anything. And nobody can tell me what to do. Freedom is only freedom from constraint. That's all it means now. The absence of rules, the absence of requirements or limitations of any kind. But that's not really freedom. Real freedom is not only freedom from. Real freedom must also be freedom for. And here's where a proper understanding of my will and God's will comes together. In our story, God is using a test to reform Abraham's will. Abraham's behavior has been very much like the disciples as Jesus was being arrested, wild and irregular. Sometimes he's been dependable and faithful, and sometimes his trust in God hasn't translated into appropriate actions. It's important to note God isn't using this test in Genesis 22 to create a relationship with Abraham. Wow, would that be a terrible way to try to make a relationship with somebody? God already already has a relationship with Abraham, a relationship that has spanned most of a very long lifetime for this man. Abraham's desire and will has frequently been out of step with God. Abraham has tried to take control of his relationship with God in order to get the results that he thinks that he wants. God is not trying to take control of Abraham's will in turn, but to provide Abraham with an opportunity to put his own will in line with God's, to submit. In our story, Isaac does not appear to have been coerced or forced into the sacrifice. He seems to be, as far as we can tell, a willing participant. That is to say, he conformed his will to the will of God. He trusted God, and that trust empowered him to behave in a certain way. We might even say that Isaac was freed to do God's will. In the tale of Gethsemane and Jesus' sacrifice, when Jesus realizes that the answer to his request that God free him from this coming sacrifice, that the answer is no, Jesus is actually freed for his coming sacrifice. He is given the capacity, the direction, and the ability to do what he must precisely because he aligns his will to the will of God. 
Now, does this mean that we are loved by God only to the degree that we do God's will? No, it doesn't mean that. Does this mean that we can have a relationship with God only by being good or being moral? No, it doesn't mean that. We're loved by God because we are God's creation. That's it, full stop. That's why God loves us. God made us. We are in relationship with God through the free grace and love of Jesus Christ. We accept that grace. We're in relationship with God. Our obedience doesn't put us in relationship with God. Our obedience flows out of our relationship with God. Again, remember, Abraham has known God for most of his life. The obedience to which God calls him is part and parcel of that lifelong relationship. We aren't saved by good works or moral behavior, but don't imagine for a moment that your relationship with God through Jesus Christ doesn't have some like really immediate consequences for your life. Of course it does. Friends, where are you tempted to say that nobody is allowed to tell you what to do? I gotta say, I've seen an awful lot of uh, you can't make me and this is a free country in the news lately. Here's a simple beginning to a more robust and Christian understanding of that freedom and the submission of our will to Christ. Instead of asking, why should I have to? Ask, how can I love my neighbor best? Right? Those are really different questions. And one of them is a Christian question. Christ, yeah, one of them is a Christian question and one of them isn't. Instead of saying, you can't make me, just ask, how could I be of service to God in this moment? The truth is, uh, it's difficult for me to give you like a list of specific behaviors to do. The submission of the will to God is complicated. It often requires different things of different people. If we were going to do this in a really, you know, fine-grained, specific way, we'd have to sit down for a couple of hours, you know, have a couple of cups of coffee and really talk it through. It would take a long time. Um, but there are still some basic ways of thinking about the world and engaging with God that can help us to imagine what God desires of each one of us. We must allow the teachings of Scripture to guide us here, and, to thank, and thankfully, that actually helps us a great deal in this question. The Scriptures teach us to love God, to love our neighbor, and to love our enemy. So as you imagine what it means to submit yourself to God, ask yourself whether or not your behavior reflects the love of God to the world around you. If you're placing your rights or your freedoms above those of your neighbor or even of your enemy, then you probably need to stop and think for a little bit about that. And yes, this will indeed require you to sacrifice in real and meaningful ways. The very passage that we're in helps to frame some of the ways that we can work to align our will to God's will. The first thing that is required is the capacity to listen to the voice of God. Did you notice that Abraham and Jesus are both attuned to God? They want to know God. They want to understand and follow God's will. This is, in fact, Jesus' core desire throughout the Gospels. The second thing that's required is referred to in many different ways in Scripture, but let's borrow Jesus' way of talking about it, because, you know, Jesus usually talks about things in good ways. It is the willingness to take up my cross. That's the metaphor Jesus uses. That means I must be willing to set aside my own personal preferences and desires 
in favor of God's vision for a better world. It almost certainly means suffering, and it almost certainly means giving up my personal wants in order to love and serve God and my neighbor and my enemy. It means actual obedience to Jesus' call upon our lives. Here's my encouragement for you this week, and I'll get the worship team to come up. We'll we'll get back to the rest of our service now. Here's my encouragement for you this week. Try to be attentive to God in your prayers, first of all, and in your scripture reading. Specifically ask God where and how you must submit your will to God's will. Think carefully about your actions, especially in relationship to other people. And any time the thought pops into your head that you're a free person, follow that up with a question about what you're going to do with that freedom. What act of service and love is God freeing you for? 